This episode of Order from Ashes is part of Shia Power Comes of Age, the transformation of Islamist politics in Iraq. This Century International Project explores the transformation of Shia Islamist politics in Iraq since the U.S. invasion in 2003. In the first episode, I spoke with Sajad Jayad about the exact nature of that transformation and what its significance is for politics in Iraq and politics and lived experience more widely. In the second episode, I spoke with Marcina Shamari about the question of whether clerics have had their influence diminished as they've been able to play a more central role in politics. Today, I'm speaking with Taif al-Khudari about protest politics and the alternate course they're trying to chart. And in the fourth and final episode in the series, I'll be talking with Ali al-Maulawi about the uncomfortable coexistence of a history of sectarian prejudice against uh, Shia in Iraq with the ascent of Shia Islamist factions to political preeminence. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis at Century International. Today, we have another installment in the Shia Politics Working Group series. Today, I'm talking to Taif al-Khodari about her research into the revolutionary parties in Iraq and what kinds of ideas they have developed in the years since their Tishrin protest movement uh, overthrew one government and for a while was the central event in Iraqi politics. Uh, Taif, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Now, it might seem like a, a, a to to a listener like a weird bedfellow to have the revolutionary protest politics in a uh, in a study of Shia politics in Iraq. Um, but I guess to to contextualize things, um, uh, the the starting question here was in an environment that's dominated by politics that's usually uh, coded in terms of sect or, or sectarian affiliation, the Tishreen movement uh, in 2019 was resolutely something else. Um, so why don't you start by explaining to us what was the sort of uh, central idea or identity uh, of the of the Tishreen uh, political uh, or the, the the politics of Tishreen and how did that differ from the from the general dominant context in Iraq? Sure. So um, what we had on the 1st of October 2019 were big protests. Uh, these were uh, protests that were largely, um, so they were very similar to protests that had come before at the beginning. So protests that had taken place in 2015 and 2011, where people were calling for services, for an end to corruption, um, and for employment opportunities. Then what we saw in, in October 2019 was a huge use of violence. And this uh, use of uh, coercion against protesters basically meant that their message changed. So they started calling for an overhaul of the type of political system that was implemented in Iraq after 2003. Um, and this uh, political system, which is based on a form of uh, power sharing, empowered um, a group of sectarian elites who've basically ruled Iraq um, since then. And so faced with this, uh, protesters started calling for the overhaul um, of the system. And they said, we no longer want um, 
to be represented on the basis of our sect, as had been the case uh, since 2003. But instead, they wanted to be represented as Iraqis. So um, in terms of um, them being Iraqi citizens, citizens as opposed to uh, members of particular sects or particular ethnic uh, communities. And this, this, as I recall, was a was a sort of seminal uh, manifestation of of a nationalist impulse. It wasn't by any means the first uh, or only expression of this uh, this desire in in public life in Iraq uh, post Saddam uh, after the U.S. invasion. There have been, you know, many many individuals and groups along the way that have expressed uh, uh, an interest in something other than the uh, than this than this uh, terrible uh, sort of sectarian power-sharing system. Um, what made, um, what distinguished Tishreen from the preceding, uh, whether it was protest movements or, or political actors or, or others who had voiced a similar interest in the previous 15 years of having something, uh, you know, an Iraqi system rather than a sectarian spoils system? Um, so I think at the beginning, even at the beginning when this system was being implemented, there were a lot of people who were criticizing it. So when um, the Iraqi elites and their allies, their foreign allies were coming up with the ideas for what uh, post-2003 Iraq would look like, a lot of people already um, said at the time that this would only lead to violence and that they it would lead to the sectarianization of society and politics. Um, and what we saw with the protests, for example, in 2011 and 2015, was that um, although we saw large numbers of people out on the streets uh, during these times, they were largely calling for reform. By 2019, that had really shifted. Um, and people started calling for the overhaul of the political system because they saw that the people who were supposed to be representing them on the basis of their sects, so for example, the Shia politicians who were supposed to be representing the Shia population and ensuring the kind of discrimination that they saw under Saddam Hussein um, wouldn't reoccur, uh, were the the politicians who were oppressing that very same population. Um, and so what we saw in 2019 was really the development, one, of protesters' demands, and two, the development of this um, sort of unitary nationalist identity that had already uh, started to um, emerge in 2015. So... In the years since, I mean, this this was a a, a huge and and very brave movement. Uh, at least six hundred unarmed protesters were killed uh, in the in the early phases of of Dishanin. Um The status quo political parties uh, who seemed to agree on nothing else uh, seemed to agree on using any and all resources of state violence and repression to to try and crush this movement. Uh, so in the years since, we have, I mean, I guess three-ish, three-plus years uh, now to, to assess. Um, what what has been the, the political legacy of Tishreen? What, you know, uh, what political parties or political ideas or other structures uh, have come out of Tishreen that can represent this unitary nationalist idea uh, that, that you were just talking about? I mean, I think there are three things we can talk about. The first thing um, is that for many protesters, the legacy of Tishreen is that it really made them see politics anew. They saw that there were new ways of imagining or reimagining Iraqi politics, um, which is something that 
uh, hadn't really been the case in 2015 and 2011. I think for a lot of them, this is what has stuck with them. Um, for others, it's they saw it saw the emergence of. Um, not political parties as such, but organizations that are working on raising political consciousness within um, Iraq and in particular working with Iraqi youth on these kinds of um, issues. Um, and then a smaller uh, group of protesters who were prominent during the, the mobilization itself have formed political parties. Um, and through the formation of these political parties, they've basically... Um, tried to operationalize the ideas that were developed during the protest. So this idea of having um, civic parties where um, sort of sect does not feature prominently in, in its membership and who they um, say they represent and the way that they do politics um, in parliament. So I think these are the three uh, main legacies of, of Tishreen. And we're gonna we're gonna have I think considerable time to talk about the backlash, uh, but I want to start with with I think the most important part of what you've identified in your work, which is affirmatively and creatively what these different groups and movements stand for, uh, in addition to what they stand against. And I think this is a a really you know, I think it's a critical part of of the ethnography and research you've done, which is sort of asking like, okay, like, yes, we can talk at length about everything, the, the diagnosis of what's wrong and, and, and that's important. Um, but uh, tell us in as, sort of as much detail as you've been able to find, like what, what is, you know, what is the, what is it for? What, what, what do they, what do they want to, 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 to create uh, in, in, in place of this, uh, the, the status quo? Mm. I mean, a popular mantra within the protests and anyone you talk to is that since 2003, the state created in Iraq has been a state of parties. So it's a state that's for the parties, that serves the parties. It's a state that's been captured by them, um, where public resources are used um, to fund the parties themselves or the, for the personal interests of politicians and affiliated militia groups. And what the protesters and the parties um, that emerged out of the protests have tried to do is uh, to create a state of citizens. So it's a state that represents ordinary Iraqis that serves their needs as opposed to the needs of the population. And they've tried to do this through... Um, for example, having people who are competent in key positions in government as opposed to uh, having people in these positions because of their affiliation with a particular um, party. Um, so this is what they're trying to, to move towards. Um, and they think that one of the key ways of doing this is by moving away from sectarianism, where um, sect determines what position you have, what uh, party you vote for, um, etc. How do they talk about power? Because as I as I understand this, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, there have been previous previous uh, conversations about bringing in technocrats, um, and the problem there is, you know, you can you can bring in someone who understands telecommunications or even someone who isn't corrupt, and it doesn't actually matter if they have no power base. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that what the kind of utopian ideal that these parties have. Um, been discussing is the idea of not just replacing the people in power, so not just replacing um, 
a minister with a technocrat. It's the idea of changing the power relations at the heart of government. So instead of just replacing the people there, they want to change the entire system and the way that it runs. So I don't think that for them, the solution is having... Um, you know, a minister here and there uh, who might do a better job than someone who's affiliated with one of the dominant parties, for example. The point is to build the system um, anew in the in the long term. And and the model of the certainly the protests themselves, and and I'm guessing of these protest parties, is uh, very counter to the model of the existing. Uh, factions and parties, right, which are very much top down. I mean, there's the the you know even a movement like the Sadrist movement, which has a lot of uh, street power. It is not a grassroots movement in the sense that uh, the 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 membership is not driving the agenda of the party. And certainly in 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 other more powerful and, and unitary factions, it's the, the leaders of the factions decide. You know the the Zaim, the bosses decide what what's going to happen, and they you know they sort of deploy their their followers or, or their or their fighters uh, or their voters as as they wish. Uh, so how how uh, overtly is the the Tashirin movement and its sort of legacy structures uh, challenging that idea by by talking about power? Uh, and decisions as being something that stems from, you know, from individuals and uh, Iraqi citizens and, and people? Mm, I think certainly during the protests, because the the people who took part in 2019, many of them had also been involved in the 2015 protests, and they saw how those protests went wrong. And one of the key ways that that, that happened was through this alliance between the uh, Iraqi Communist Party and the Sadrist movement, which for many of protesters in 2019 um, was a way of selling out or what, what they said was that the Iraqi Communist Party had sold out the movement in 2015 and it had done so without um, the permission or the agreement of the broader movement. So when we got to 2019, this idea of horizontal decision making where everyone um, was involved, for example, and statements issued across protest camps um, was very much in play. I think in terms of the parties that emerged out of Tishreen, they definitely have um, popular grassroots uh, basis, but they're also hierarchical in the sense that um, they have clear leadership structures. Um, and the issue with having the issues they face because they're really made up of activists, people who um, don't have any experience in politics, is that they've really started to fall apart um, because everyone has different agendas. They feel that um, they should have a say in decision making. So although they've tried to impose this kind of hierarchy, I think it's been quite difficult for them. Um, the other ways that they differ from the sort of establishment post-2003 parties is um, in terms of their sources of funding. So a lot of them were established and registered with the Electoral Commission, for example, on the basis of donations um, from, from their support base. But again, this means that they don't have a lot of money because um, a lot of people in Iraq and especially in the South where... Um, some of these, the, the big parties that emerged after 2000, uh, sorry, after 2019, have their um, 
basis, people don't have extra income um, that they can use, for example, to donate to a party or in terms of um, sort of membership fees. So they've also had issues raising money, for example. You're listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. I'm talking with uh, Taya Falhodari, who is a member of our Shia Politics Working Group, part of the Faith and Fracture Project. Uh, and we're talking about the revolutionary parties in Iraq and what sort of new ideas and identities they're creating in Iraqi politics that run counter to the existing sectarian trends. You can read Taif's report uh, at the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. The report is called young revolutionary parties are still Iraq's best hope for democracy. We'll be right back after this break to continue our conversation. I'm Dahlia Shendlin. At Century International, I lead our research into democratic erosion in Israel and Palestine, in addition to analysis on Israeli foreign policy, Israel and Palestine in the Middle East, and the foreign policy of other countries regarding this region. As a political scientist and a pollster, for decades I've followed the corrosive effects of the occupation on Palestinians and Israelis, especially on democracy. I've been researching the right-wing assault on the Israeli judiciary for years before it took over the national agenda. And as a political advisor, I try to bring these insights to policymakers, especially those committed to advancing Israeli-Palestinian political resolution. You can find Century International's research on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking with Daf al-Khudari about her research into Iraq's revolutionary parties and what sort of alternatives they've created to the uh, corrupt and sectarian politics that are dominant in the country. Uh, Taf, uh, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. So right before the break, you were uh, talking about the problems facing these parties uh, that came out of the Tishrin protest movement, uh, the ways in which they are uh, falling apart uh, now that they some of them have uh, positions in parliament uh, uh, and the difficulties that they have um, uh, raising money. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually wanted you to talk a little bit more about the, the the falling apart bit like like how well have these parties done or, or rather maybe that's the wrong way to put it what have been the pressures that have made it hard or if in any cases uh, successful for these parties to try and create like real political leaders and politburos and comms departments and the things that uh, that make an institutionalized party survive beyond uh, the, the the movement moment that we we often talk about in these catalytic revolutionary moments. Sure. I mean, I think that the you kind of touched upon the first point that many of these uh, people who not only founded these parties but make up the membership of these parties um, have no political experience beyond partaking in protests or um, even just taking part in the 2019 um, revolution. And as a consequence, they don't know how to build a party. When I've spoken to people from these um groups, they've often said, for example, that they need training on all manner of things. They need to understand how to speak to the media, how to frame their policies, um, how to organize a political party. You name it, they need it, um, from what I've heard. Um, and I think that the second thing is um, many of them have entered politics on, on this sort of civic or 
um, secular, let's say, platform. But the issue is how to navigate this very fractured, highly sectarian political system without being accused of joining sides. So we've seen, for example, um, one of the parties in Tadad, which uh, rose from the south of Iraq and, you know, famously won nine seats during the elections initially. So they've tried, the only way that they've been able to do this is by trying to stay outside of the political system. So saying, we're going to stay outside, we're not going to partake um, in uh, legislation, for example, and we're just going to observe and monitor the workings of parliament. Um, and this is because at the beginning, when they decided to to partake and vote for Mohammed al-Halbusi for um, Speaker of Parliament, a lot of their most prominent members, I think 17 of them, um, resigned very publicly, saying that they were getting involved um, in ethno-sectarian politics, which they'd promised um, not to do. So now their policy is a policy of negation. But that begs the question, of where do they go next with this and where do they go in the long term and how they prove uh, to the electorate that um, they can get things done in, in parliament and therefore that people should vote for them. Um, and how do you create an identity beyond that when all you're doing is staying out of, of politics? Um, the second thing that's happening is that they're constantly being attacked from the establishment, sorry, by the establishment parties who have more resources than them, uh, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of arms and, and weaponry. So again, a member of Imtidad who I spoke to told me that it was really hard for them to come up with particular policy recommendations because when they had done so in the past in relation to the Hashid, for example, um, they were attacked online uh, there was a, a campaign against them online and many of their members were all th also threatened. So then that begs the question of how do you develop any policy recommendations or um, partake in, in politics actively when you're constantly um, being attacked and you're always on the defence. Um, and and the, the other thing is, uh, and this is what I talk about in my paper, it's, it's about what their ideology means in practice. So, um, for example, another party that emerged out of the South called Beit al-Watani, when I spoke to members of that party, they um, constantly said that... Um, Either they didn't know what this meant in practice or that they just wanted to be part of the Iraqi nation. Um, others were talking about liberal economic policies, for example, um, and implementing them um, more, co more consistently in Iraq. So in practice, their ideology is not revolutionary at all. Um, you know, it, it remains weak when they try to operationalize it. Yeah, I mean, this I, I hear several really... Uh, sort of compelling themes coming out of of your your work uh in this report you did and and in general in the the sort of interactions with these revolutionary parties and you know like so a couple of questions leap to my mind one is uh you know despite their their avowed nationalism they you know there seem to be predominantly shia parties from the south and then there's a new new generation is it, uh, it seems largely to be made up of Kurds. Um, I'm not aware if there's a sort of largely Sunni party, but even though these are non non sectarian parties, their membership and geographical base uh, seems to nonetheless break down along the same regional and sectarian cleavages 
um, as the main parties. And then, you know, two other points you just raised, and I just want to, 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 to put a finger on them because I think they're so critical. One is politics. Like the, the, like these, these groups largely don't seem to actually be interested in engaging in politics because, uh, I mean, for, for all these reasons you described, but, uh, you know, the, the sort of either boring or controversial taking of political positions, uh, uh, immediately puts a big strain, uh, on the membership. So they just want to avoid, you know, do you have a position on dissolving militias, uh, or on regulating the Hashid al-Shabi, uh, and the fight, the fighters within its context? Do you really want to take on, uh, corruption, when it's linked to jobs that people are are benefiting from, or do you simply want to extend that corrupt network to more of your members? Um, and then the third the third strain, which you talked about several times, but I think is is so central to understanding this, is that the second any movement with even the slightest credibility touches on the power sources of the status quo factions, whether it's the militias or the the many public sources of money uh, from which they steal they'll be killed as as i mean that's the that's the the third rail that Iraqis whether they're you know social media influencers or poets or political activists they often are are uh, face violence uh, uh, and and assassination when they go after specifics of the ways in which the power structure controls uh people and steals uh from people and and it, I, I'm wondering if in, you know, so, you know, that's as much a, a soliloquy as a question, uh, but how those sort of themes fit in with with your analysis of this and whether any of these uh, nascent parties uh, are beginning, even in a sort of uh, inchoate ideological way to, to address this, uh, this sort of big, you know, the sort of central question of how you res- wrestle power away from these rotten uh, status quo factions? Mm, big questions there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think in relation to the, the first question or the first point you made about how a lot of these parties are Shia parties or made up predominantly of Shia membership and they're, they're, they're um, sort of coming out of the southern Iraq. I think for me, this doesn't matter insofar as they are not trying to, um, firstly, they're not using sectarianism as a tool through which to recruit people or a tool through which to do politics. So they're not saying in their electoral campaigns, um, I am from the same sect as you, therefore you should vote for me because I will protect your um, your interests. They're not doing that at all. Therefore, I don't think it matters that they're from the South and they're made up of pre- predominantly Shia activists. Secondly, they're actively trying to recruit beyond these spaces. So Beit al-Watani um, in particular uh, have around 12 um, officers across the country. So they have a base in um, Salah al-Din, they have a office in Baghdad, they have a bunch of offices in um, the South as well. Um, so they're actively trying to recruit beyond the South and to recruit cross-ethnically as opposed to um, only focusing on Shia membership or Shia voters. And to some extent, you can say the same thing with Imtidad insofar as um, 
It's true that their strongest base is in the south, but they allied with a new generation, for example, which is this Kurdish party. Um, so in some ways, they are trying to go beyond this. But I agree with you that it's limited because... Um, you know, you still have, for example, in the Imtidad New Generation Coalition example, you still have a predominantly Kurdish party allying with um, an Arab party, let's say. So obviously there are, there are um, we're not quite there yet, <laughs> but the parties are taking active steps to move beyond sectarianism. And one of those steps is to recruit cross-country as opposed to focusing on just the South or just Baghdad, for example. Um, and then the second thing is um, in terms of how anyone who's critical of the government or militias gets killed, I think this is a huge limitation for these parties and will hugely limit what they can achieve and what um, they can do. Um, and I don't think that there's really any way for them to overcome this. The only thing that I can think of is Al-Bayt al-Watani, for example, are organizing a lot of um, meetings at the moment or a series of meetings where they're um, trying to form a coalition with other uh, parties, civil society groups, civil society activists uh, to think about their strategy going forward um, during the next elections and what they want. Um, so I guess that's one way to do it because if you're building coalitions, you're increasing your electoral base um, and maybe that gives you leverage. Um, but yes, I agree with you 100%. I think that the fact that um, anyone who is critical of the government or associated militias gets killed means that their work is going to be super, super uh, limited, whatever they do. Yeah, in my conversations, uh, my limited conversations, you know, somewhat out of date now with uh, members of, of these parties, uh, and this was, I guess, uh, around... The, the time of last spring when uh, I think maybe Halbusi hadn't even been elected yet or was about to be elected. So or early in the government formation in Broglio, what I was struck by was uh, was how resolutely the, the activist leaders I spoke to uh, were trying to avoid uh, getting uh, sucked into politics, uh, which to me seemed understandable, but also inherently limiting. You know, at the at the end of the, at the end of the day, these groups will have long term impact on politics and power in Iraq if they are able to um, to you know to build to take to have power to wield power of some sort, whether it's within the government or as critics of the government. Um, and I think that's that's their aim. Uh, but ultimately, you know, Iraqis are sophisticated consumers of their own politics and they're going to want to know what like what is your position on all these issues uh and ultimately uh, we've seen in other contexts like Lebanon and, and Egypt uh when revolutionary parties shied away uh from addressing these core questions that are on everyone's minds when it comes to politics and power ultimately if the parties don't address these things they they drift to the margins i agree with you to some extent i think that a lot of the time, politics in Iraq is not based on a platform or having a um, sort of action plan for the next four years. Rather, people vote on the basis of who 
um, sort of paves a road for them that uh, month. Uh, so I don't think that the new parties are impacted by that because I don't think that's how voting works in Iraq. I think what the problem is, is that these parties made big promises about how they would navigate sectarianism within the political system. And they haven't really been able, not just sectarianism, but the corruption that comes um, with it as well. And they haven't really been able to date to prove themselves. And because they haven't been able to prove themselves, they've lost a lot of supporters. So um, there is the example for ex uh, with Imtidad that I mentioned earlier about um, them voting for Halbusi and how everyone um, or their electoral base um, and, and key members within the party saw this as them being co-opted by the system. And you have this also with um, al-Bayt al-Watani, who saw huge resignations. Um, at one point, 500 members uh, resigned and two of their offices um, were emptied, basically. Um, I think at some point they only had one member left in Najaf. Um, and this was because um, the the general secretary of that party was seen to um, have allied or at least become affiliated with the Sadrists by basically nominating someone or supporting the nomination of someone who'd ran um, as an independent with um, the Sadrists in 2018, in the 2018 elections. Um, and so I think this is the biggest, the bigger issue, and this is why they're losing supporters because they're seen to have been co-opted. And it goes back to this this idea about one, their membership base being mostly activists, so they have high expectations, and their support base also being activists who aren't tempering their um, sort of expectations to what is possible within Iraqi politics. And I think this is why um, people will not vote for them um, in two, three, four years' time. So la last question. Um, to the extent there is one, what is the ideology of Tishreen? Uh, you know, should we think of it as secular, civic, nationalist? Like, what's your, what's your thumbnail uh, sketch of what, what, you know, what is the emerging alternative to uh, sectarian patronage politics, which I think is the prevailing political ideology of Iraq's dominant factions today? I would say it's a, it's a unitary nationalist identity. So it is the idea that instead of being represented on the basis of your sect, you're represented in politics on the basis that you are Iraqi and that you are an Iraqi citizen. And in this way, I think that what the protesters and the parties that came after them were thinking is that then the state would not discriminate against you or that the state would basically represent everybody equally. And it's also a transformation of the state so that um, it represents Iraqis as opposed to representing and serving the needs of the political parties. I think that this is... Um, what, what Tishreen has uh, developed. And to, to me, I think that's a very powerful idea. And, and I think it's, it's a direct existential threat to the entire array of existing parties. Because, you know, analytically, we come up with this problem all the time when someone will ask, you know, what, what is the difference between Maliki and Sadr on policy? And you're like, how do, is it even possible to describe 
uh, you know, policy differences between between these factions. And I, I find for the most part, it isn't right because they they they're not they're not groupings based on any kind of as you said uh, anything other than sect baiting. You know, we will protect you as Shia, as Kurds, as Sunnis against you know some other. And the second that there's a entity on the scene that's talking about all these things in a different way, that lays bare the 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 sort of rottenness and, and hollowness at the core of of the sectarian parties mm. yep and i think that this uh, to go back to your point about violence as well i think that this um threat so what we saw in 2018 was that an increasing number of parties affiliated with militias entering parliament. And as a consequence, when the protests broke out in 2019 and there was this existential threat, you had this huge increase in armed actors who now had a stake uh, in the political system in the way it is and um, basically did whatever they could to protect um, their stake in it. And I think this is why we've seen this huge increase um, in coercion from 2019 onwards. And even in the aftermath of the big mobilization, we saw something like 30 activists, political activists assassinated um, for that reason. So I think that this idea of an existential threat really increased after 2019, but also um, the type of actors that were facing the threat changed. And therefore you saw this huge increase um, in, in coercion that we'd never seen before, not in the 2015 protests, not in the 2011 um, protests, not to this extent. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with Taif Al-Khodari about her recent report, Young Revolutionary Parties Are Still Iraq's Best Hope for Democracy. It's part of Century International's Faith and Fracture Project, which looks at the transformation of Shia politics in Iraq uh, over the last 20 years and what it tells us about sectarian and Islamist politics more widely. Daif, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You can find Daif's report and uh, the other parts of this project at uh, the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and you've been listening to Order from Ashes. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.